Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. We have uh, a guest this week, and then a roundtable. The guest is Molly Sullivan. She is very familiar to Philadelphia Sixers fans. For six years, she was the sideline reporter on Sixers television. Incredibly popular, did a great job, and in a move that has been universally panned by Sixers fans and NBA fans, NBC Sports Philadelphia let her go unexpectedly. She comes on for 40 minutes or so and discusses that decision, why it happened, and I think it's really pretty remarkable insight into somebody who should not have lost their job, but lost their job. We follow that that up with a roundtable with Austin Karp. He is the Sports Business Daily's assistant managing editor and one of the country's foremost experts when it comes to sports television ratings. And a regular on this podcast, we love when he's on, it's Robert Littell, the founder and editor of Black Sports Online. So Molly Sullivan first, and then a roundtable with Austin Karp and Robert Littell coming up on the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. All right, and as I said at the top, we bring in Molly Sullivan, and we're going to get into um, what went down with her in Philadelphia, which has been rightfully a very big story in sports media circles. And Molly Sullivan, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, thanks so much, Richard. All right, Molly, first, before we get into um, NBC Sports Philadelphia letting you go, I want to just give people a sense of what your job has been like with or covering Sixers game over the last couple of years. Because the position that you're in really... um, can be different in different cities depending on how much airtime you get, how much the sideline reporter is part of the broadcast. In some uh, some broadcasts, they go to the si- sideline reporter is essentially almost like a third color analyst. In other places, they barely get some time. So, for those who are outside of Philadelphia, can you give them a sense of what your responsibilities were on Sixers broadcasts? Yeah, you bet. So, I, I joined uh, the Seventy Sixers. In April 2012, and that was about two weeks before the playoffs. So you may recall Derrick Rose goes down in game one. That was kind of my welcome to the NBA moment. And I had previously covered college football and and college basketball in my hometown of Las Vegas, cut my teeth there. I think at times my parents were the only ones watching the network. (laughs) So I was able to learn and, and, uh, you know, really hone my craft. It was an NBC Sports regional network. So that's kind of the, uh, the tie-in to how I got to Philadelphia. Um, NBA is my first love, so when they called, there was a little bit of a panic because um, the Mountain West Sports Network was was folding, and you know I had two days' notice essentially for the quote-unquote dream job. So there's a little bit of that that uh, type A that I start to panic, and I remember talking to my agent, being like, "Yo, I don't know if I'm ready for this," and you know taking a step back and saying, "Okay, I've." worked my entire professional life to get to this moment, you know, um, so that was uh, my first challenge. And once I overcame that, you know, game one, I've got, I look over and I've got Bird to my right and growing up, you know, I'm a Tar Heel, the right shade of blue, right? Those Michigan guys. Um, but growing up, Bird was my guy. And if he was 1A, then Jordan was 1B. So I look over my first game and I see Bird standing there at Indiana um, and so, you know, I, I worked through that. And at my core, Richard, you know, I'm a reporter and I loved basketball. And so was I great when I got to Philadelphia? Probably not. Um, but but somehow I, I, you know, earned the respect of the city and truly feel like I was built for this city. So um, I joined them six years ago 
and I'm two years removed from that 10-win season. Uh, and at that time, I was actually pregnant for that entire season. So we joke about, you know, 10 wins, nine months. If I ever wrote a book, <laughs> that would be my my book. But, um, you know, I've seen a lot. And you, you touched upon the fact that a team sideline reporter is much different than, than say, at a, at a network level. And that's only because of the access that we're, we're granted. And so you walk that that very delicate line. And, and being an athlete, I'm a competitor. And that's perhaps what I, you know, challenged was the biggest challenge throughout these years is because, you know, it wasn't my role to break news. It wasn't always my role to ask the, the number one question. Um, and so I had to learn my role and know my role and, and, and work to um, perfect it. And I think I did a pretty good job with that, given the circumstances of everything. Um, and so that's, uh, that's where we are today. All right, Molly, I want to, uh, we're eventually going to get into, um, working, um, in your role, given the amount of losing that the Sixers did. And there's been so much obviously written about the process and, um, and the Sixers, let's be honest, tanking to get better assets. But, you know, through the, uh, through the darkness, they now have one of the really, really strong elite young teams in the league. Before that, though, I want to ask um, as specific as you can, and I realize this is not an easy subject to talk about. How did you learn about being let go by NBC Sports Philadelphia? So um, I think it's deceptively simple, <laughs> Richard, and it's yet endlessly complicated. You know, you can put 24 seconds on the clock. That's truly how long it took to tell me I was no longer necessary. So um, I walked into my executive producer's office and I immediately knew, I mean, he's, you know, we're, we're talking family at, at the beginning, but I knew something was up, which was odd because, um, you know, I had called the meeting and, um, you know, as we do every off season, we, we look ahead, we, we think of things, you know, that, that, um, you know, how can I, how can I better help the broadcast? What can I do this off season to stay um, connected to the team, to the city. And so that's what I, um, assumed I was, I was sitting down and he essentially said that, um, the network had decided to streamline their coverage. Uh, he mentioned that at one point, um, during my six years here in Philadelphia, that they had three people doing one job. Um, a little ironic there because I've, you know, I, I think all sideline reporters, at least in, you know, the NBA, we're very close friends in every NBA city. I think we all crave um, to be part of more of a, a substantial conversation. And it's not about FaceTime. It's just given more of a conversation because we are granted so much access. And and so that's the thing that perhaps stung the, the, the most is because, um, you know, I've always wanted more responsibility, never got that legit shot. And, you know, you can go a number of di- different direction as to why. Um, so I know better than to, to argue with the boss and I, I thanked him. Um, I, I recall saying that I'm, I'm more than a sideline reporter because that was the, essentially the message that I was given. And, um, I shook his hand and, and I left. It was less than five minutes and, you know, that, uh, it was a complete curveball, um, to say the very least. couple things here. They called the meeting or you called the meeting? Um, I did. I did. It was pushed back a couple of okay. times. But but I had reached out to him um, 
Yes. So I, I basically set up my, my release of my contract not being renewed. So how about that? That's one for the books. Wow. The, when was the, Were you on, if you can um, discuss it, were you on a year-by-year contract? Is that how it worked? Or multi-years that just happened to be up at the end of this season? Uh, both. Both. Um, but we, this was up and we were ready to, um, you know, renegotiate or, or whatnot. And, you know, look, I had never been told if we're judged by performance metrics. Um, I was never told I wasn't performing to exception. And, and certainly um, the reason that was given to me does not suggest that either. So that's the thing that that hurts here. You know, you know, I'm excited for the future. Yes. But um, I cared tremendously about my job. It was more than a job to me. And and, and perhaps I, I should have done a better job of, of defining, you know, the, the professional and the, and the personal side of things. Um, but I make no apology for that because, you know, I, I, I was invested with this group and I took my job incredibly serious. I think with success, perhaps you can get a little complacent. And I never got complacent. You know, I, I revolving door of players in Brett Brown's first three years. Um, there's a double-edged sword there, Richard, because when you live the Dr. J years, when you live the Iverson years, that makes it difficult for some to handle the losing. And I'm not just talking the fans, but, um, you know, everyone involved with it. I never blinked. I never, you know, questioned anything. I, I made it a point to get to know every player, um, every staff member, everybody. And um, so that's why um, this is a curveball, a knockdown, you know, I'm a professional and, and we'll, we'll look to the future, but certainly didn't see this one coming. All right. A couple of things here. Um, this is the, the person you're sitting with. This is the executive producer at NBC Sports Philadelphia. It is correct. Okay. Do you want, are you intentionally not naming this person? doesn't matter to me, but. No, his name's Sean Alexiak. All right, so it's really more, less for anything else other than so I could sort of refer to him if I need to when you're having this meeting. Sure. So when when he is when he is telling you that um, you know the NBC Sports Philadelphia is not going to pick you up or they're going to let you go, um, is there any justification in that outside of him just informing you that you're not being picked up, or did you specifically ask him, even though you understood what was going down, like? It, is there a corporate reason for this? Is it financial? Is it something else? Or was it really left unsaid that you had your conversation, you walked out within five minutes? So, again, what he said was, we are going to streamline our coverage and we're moving in a new direction. At which time, I, it, it, at that time, you have things flash through your mind, right? Of all the good, the bad, you start to question things, but you bring it back to center. And perhaps in five, seven seconds, he transitioned into, we want to thank you for your time. Um, we wish you the best in your next chapter. So it was, it wasn't, it wasn't up for discussion. It was, this is, this is the decision and, um, and that's it. And I, look, I'm a professional. I'm not going to uh, sit there and, you know, debate things. Um, even though I had a lot of things flash through my mind, Richard, I'm, I'm incredibly loyal and I am loyal to a fault. Professionally, personally, it's in my blood. And so I think when I was when I was told that, that's where my mind went. And I've been doing this 13 years, 11 of them in sports. I've never been in this position where my contract wasn't renewed. 
Um, but like you said, you know, good people lose their jobs. Very few experienced the power of Philadelphia sports fans and what I've really gone through the, the last week. Um, you know, it's, it's been, uh, it's been incredibly humbling. Molly, do you, um, do you have in the past, did you normally do your own contract or did you have an agent to serve as sort of either a buffalo buffer or a third party to do the negotiating? Yeah. So there's the catch too. I've, I've always had an agent. Um, and we got to the point where I just felt like I didn't need an agent, right? You get to that point where you say, okay, I'm good where I'm at and I'm doing a great job. The feedback this season was, was incredibly positive. And so I thought, well, do I really need an agent? You know, I'm okay, you know? And so there's the ironic nature with that. So I've, I've gone my entire career with an agent and then perhaps the one time that I do need one, I, I, I didn't. Um, and again, I, I did reach out to my, to my previous agent and he was never told of, of anything, only positive. So, you know, it's just, um, Again, it's it's simple yet complicated, and um, and that's where we are. How were you evaluated in previous years? At the end of each season, did you have a discussion with either an executive producer or someone else to go over what they're, and this is all subjective, of course, mm-hmm. but to go over what they thought of your performance that year? No, no, and that's the thing um, that that I struggled with as well. There wasn't much. There wasn't much. Um, and, and being an athlete, I love constructive criticism. I love to learn, you know, what I'm, I can do better. And there just, there, there wasn't that much of that here. I, um, I, I will say that at the end of every off season, you know, you, you kind of chase around um, the executive producer and you, you try to get, you know, your hands on a couple things you can do better. Um, and I'm not the only one, you know, I, I think we all kind of tried to chase some, some, uh, some feedback and he just, we just didn't get it. And, um, that's certainly what I was trying to do on this round and kind of see how I can, you know, be involved with summer league and the draft and what can I do? I've, I've volunteered without pay numerous times, you know, when I was pregnant, those last 14 games, I couldn't travel. I volunteered without pay to do studio work. Um, even the second round of the playoffs when, when the network didn't broadcast, um, you know, again, Sean had, had said, Hey, you know, we can utilize you. And then there was no follow-up. I showed up to, to game three and four and there was no follow-up. So it's just, um, you, you want to be, um, look, you want to be appreciated for your hard work, right? And you want to know that you're doing things the right way. And so I definitely had to coach myself up, Richard, and understand that, um, you, you want to win, with virtue and, and stay true to your principles. And, um, you know, there was, there was definitely a lack of, um, of, of feedback along the way. Um, but there certainly was nothing negative either. Arma, I think some listeners won't understand this disconnect, but you know, in the end you are employed by the television entity, you know, whether it's Comcast Sportsnet or NBC Sports Philadelphia and not the Sixers, mm-hmm. because the Sixers have been very public, including Scott O'Neill, the CEO, to say that here's somebody who did their job with honesty and integrity. So am, am I correct that the, the Sixers management, Sixers organization in the end doesn't have any say over ultimately who their network puts on the air? Because it's very clear you you have been publicly supported 
by very high-ranking Sixers officials. Yeah, publicly and, and privately, you know, from members of the ownership group to the front office, the league office, my peers, you know, you name it. I've, I've experienced it this past week, just a level of support. And it's a safe bet, Richard, that I, I think no one inside the network saw this level of support coming. And, and that's perhaps the unfortunate part here because, like I said, I, I, I truly feel like I was built for this city. And, um, yeah, you know, I just, I don't think anybody saw this, this coming. I mean, look, when I, when I sent out that tweet Tuesday night and, you know, I had bounced things off, um, with my parents and, and, you know, I said, mom, do I even send this? Do I just, you know, kind of gracefully bow out and, you know, and, and figure out my next move. Um, and she said, you know, do what you want to do. But I, I think that you owe it to, to the fans to, you know, you're not part of this draft coverage. You're not part of the summer league coverage. Why? Um, so I sent out a tweet and I went for a run an hour later, I come back and, you know, I was already overwhelmed with the response and that certainly grew throughout, you know, the week. And I, I guess, look, there's, there's definitely basketball purists, um, much like my father, you know, that, that do silent reporters even, um, you know, bring anything to the broadcast. And I, that's what drove me game in and game out when lose or, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, I saw it all. And what I would, you know, strive to do is just to, to bring something more to the broadcast, to bring something that, you know, these, these players, the fans, they deserved. And um, so I think that that part uh, perhaps cuts deep with the Sixer fans because I was, you know, there, I was in the trenches with them, you know, from, from day one. And so perhaps that is at least what I'm hearing is, is um, connecting with them the most. What um, what have you made? What did you make of the petition that is out there to have you reinstated? A lot of times, I shouldn't say a lot of times, but oftentimes, Molly, you know this, people will do this, which is amazing support. But in the end, NBC Sports Philadelphia has spoken. Rarely do the, any of these networks ever go back and, and change up their decision. You know, we've seen this in Boston with Don Orsillo and, and other places, but... As as the person who's the subject of the petition, what did you what have you made of that? And there's a petition out there, obviously, to um, basically calling NBC Sports Philadelphia out for their decision. You know, you know, look, I'm Richard. I'm not trying to get my job back, and I I think it's it's pretty damn cool because we know what Philadelphia sports fans they are smart, they are savvy, um, they know their team, and they're no nonsense. And and you can't you can't fake it. There's no smoke and mirrors. And so I'm, I'm incredibly humbled by that, but I'm not, I'm not trying to fight with NBC Sports Philadelphia. I'm, I'm not trying to get my job back. I just, um, I don't know, man. It, it just, it's pretty, it's pretty cool because you, you look at the role of a sideline reporter and we all know the landscape of sports television uh, is changing. You know better than anybody. And so, um, you know, when I left his office saying, you know, look, I'm, I'm more than just a sideline reporter, right? I'm more than just an athlete. Um, so it's, it's, that end of it. But, you know, I'm going to be okay. And I'm excited about the future. Uh, do I agree with, with this decision? No. And, and I think it goes back to the fact that I was incredibly loyal uh, to this network, to the city, to the team um, throughout the past six years. So it's just, um, you know, it's, it, it hurts, but it, it will be okay. You know, uh, Molly, if you, uh, if you are willing to share some of this, can you, would you be willing to share um, who reached out to you in NBA circles, either 
who are part of the Sixers organization or part of other organizations? You know, it's funny because I'm always the first, like when Greg Popovich visits and, or even if we go to San Antonio and Brett Brown and he share and embrace, and I'm always like, coach, what'd you guys say? And I could always tell that he gets annoyed by me asking, but I always want to know because I could only imagine those conversations. And I just, I don't want to, you know, deep dive into that. I think, you know, Brett Brown, I will tell you was, was one of the first to reach out, uh, which meant the world to me, um, you know, and, and hearing uh, members from the league office talk about, you know, the reputation that they feel that I have and that they were, they were shocked by this. You know, it, it makes you, um, it makes you understand that, that what you're doing, you're doing things the right way. And I think that people can appreciate that there, there's a lot of phony people in this world you know, and, and where ego is the enemy. And I've, I've always had a higher goal in, in hopes that, you know, it would pay off. And, and perhaps in, a, in, a, in an odd way, this is, this is the payoff. You know, I, I see that there's more to all this. It's about the people. It's about the relationships. And, and those that have reached out, you know, look, there's also a level of kind of embarrassment, too, that this happened two days before the draft. I mean, we're looking at the Sixers. This is their most important offseason in years, if not ever. And, you know, two days before the draft, people are talking about this and they're still talking about this. And so, you know, I don't want that. And, you know, and I don't want the play. The players should be training. This is where they make their money. You know, like, I don't want any of this attention. It's unfortunate that it is right now. It just, um, you know, that's, it's just, it's, uh, you move forward, right? All right. We're going to take a break from our conversation with Molly for one minute and talk about One Blade. Today's episode of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch is brought to you by One Blade. If you've ever had a professional shave from the barbershop, you know how it can change not only how you look, but also how you feel. The baby smooth skin, the confidence you feel knowing that you look great. And now you can get that same barbershop feeling at home with the One Blade Razor. My producer, Lou Pellegrino, has been using One Blade Razors now for a little bit of time, and he swears by them. Lou, is that, uh, is that correct? You, uh, you are now you are selling the soap when it comes to One Blade. Yeah, I love the razor. I love it. Um, I've never had a smoother shave and no irritation on my neck area, which, you know, for somebody like me, I wear a lot of collared shirts and... Uh, you know, for work purposes. And, um, yeah, it, it, it definitely, there's no irritation. There's no skin irritation. There's no ingrown hair. So, uh, I, I think I found my razor. Take it from Lou Pellegrino. Take it from Richard Deitch. One blade will give you the best shave of your life with no razor burn or ingrown hairs. It's been obsessively engineered to be the optimal tool for performance shaving from the perfect pivot and weight to the finest materials, such as ultra high grade German stainless steel. This is an heirloom quality razor that you can pass down for generations. Each one is hand assembled and serial numbered. And every one blade is backed by a full 60-day money-back guarantee and a lifetime warranty. So if you're ready to have the best shave of your life, visit onebladeshave.com slash Richard. That's onebladeshave.com slash Richard. Try it. Give it some time. And if it isn't the best shave of your life, simply return it. Visit onebladeshave.com slash Richard. That's onebladeshave. That's onebladeshave.com. Slash Richard. All right, a couple of things before I we get to where you hope to be heading forward. Uh, you were the sideline reporter for a lot of losing nights for this organization. <laughs> yes. How did you approach that? Um, because that's um, 
you know, there there's there is skill and savvy to covering a winning team, but you can maybe even argue there's more skill and savvy to covering a losing team. How did you approach those nights when the Sixers, you know, were on a 12, 14 game losing streak? Yeah, you know, I, I used to say that anybody can cover a winning team, and and that was put to the test this season. Certainly, with with ending the regular season on that sixteen game winning streak, which was a magical run. But I've I, I never blinked. You know, it, it, you get up. I have my my game day routine where I go for a run. I go to shoot around. Um, you know, I speak to everybody I can get my hands on, and and you never really turn it off. And so. Um, again, I go back to the fact that yes, I am I'm new to at least the NBA circles in terms of perhaps some of my, my crew members, but, um, you know, I, I never took any of this for granted and I got to know each and every player, whether, you know, w- w- whatever their accolades, whatever their, um, credentials were. I, and, you know, I think that that's, there's value in that. Um, there's a human side to all of this that when they were losing, um, that's what I think fans connected with, and and the real Philadelphia sports fans that that saw this through, that that know that good days add up. You know, um, I, I think that that's what I, I truly value most, and what I'll I'll cherish most from this from this experience. Molly, um, over the last two years, at least, or certainly uh, this past year, um, you would do a lot of post game interviews with Joel Embiid. Mm-hmm. And some of those interviews uh, would go viral. You know, they'd go national uh, because Joel Embiid is just kind of a interesting, funny, um, charismatic, you know, use whatever word you want. He's just he's an interesting guy to talk to. Uh, what for you was particularly memorable about dealing with Embiid, particularly after games where he might say something that uh, lights up NBA Twitter? You know, I've been lucky where I've been with Joel for four years now. And um, some of my most memorable moments happened a- away from the spotlight. You know, I, I remember um, when he was making his way back and he wore white jeans on the bench. And guys, uh, you know, on Twitter and, and such were basically saying he was upwards of, of 320. And he turned to me and he said, Molly, you really think if I was that weight, I'd be wearing white? You know, there, there's, there's a side of him. <laughs> that he reads everything. He, um, he is incredibly savvy. We know this. And he's got really, really good people in his corner. And I think that when you surround yourself with good people like he has, um, you know, it, it pays off. And you, you can tell in the way that he carries himself. We saw him at the NBA Awards. He handled everything with class and, and, and with grace. Um, you know, yes, a lot of those interviews went viral. I can think of, um, you know, I, I recently spoke to a sports broadcasting camp with, with young aspiring sports broadcasters. And they brought up that, that LA Lakers clip, that historic night, he went 46, 15, seven and seven, and then um, dropped a, a percentage on me and it cut everybody off storm, except perhaps me. I moved on to the next question because I know not to, to, uh, to look back with him, but I, I just think that you can't be fooled by foolishness. And I know that it was always deeper than that. You saw a serious side to him as as the playoffs approached he's now in his first healthy offseason ever and so you know Rudy Gobert taking home defensive player of the year that's going to be a beautiful uh match to watch with with the Jazz next season so I I just um yes a lot of those interviews went viral and you know you look at the Rihanna and 
um, things like that. And we had a lot of fun together. And, um, you know, I, I, I took my job perhaps too serious, Richard, you know, and it was always up to me to kind of get the personality out of these guys. And, um, you know, that's, that's, I didn't get a lot of those post-game interviews in Brett Brown's first three years, even his first four years. And that's, that's job stability for, for a sideline reporter to an extent, right? So that's the catch with all this. Um, but Joel, I, I, you know, I, I know him as a person and, um, and I know his family and I know what he's all about. So when he would say things like that, like the 69% in Los Angeles and such, uh, it, it, it didn't bother me, man, honestly, because it's just, I, I think that, you know, being offended is a choice and I know who he is as a person and, and that just, it never offended me. I've had far greater things and worse things said to me than, than that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, again, it's sort of MB just being funny. I, I think the thing I remember a lot of times is the guys on the bench when you were doing a report yes. would almost sort of pose behind you to try to get, uh, um, you know, almost like, uh, um, what's the word I'm, uh, I'm looking for? A like, little video uh, bomb. You know, like some yeah. pretty ver- yeah, a little bit. Vi- yeah, exactly. Like video bombing. I know there was one uh, famously where MB, just because he's so tall, is sort of like a really good... Uh, a really good video bomb, but yeah, you were the, um, you were, you were the sort of subject a lot of times because of your principal role of being on the sideline and those guys being in the background shot. Um, we would, uh, we would see you there. You have seen this team develop from a very, very poor NBA team to a very, very good NBA team with a lot of upside. What do you expect this coming year from Embiid, Ben Simmons his second full year in the league, Sarich, Markel Fultz hopefully coming back and and finding his shooting form. This is a team and maybe potentially bringing in a free agent. This is a team with a as you know Molly better than me, with a lot of potential to do something really special in the next couple of years. So we'll I'll ask you a straight basketball question. What do you what do you expect from these guys in the next 2 years? And and the ironic part is this is where I get emotional on the straight basketball question because this is what matters to me. I, I love the game. I've seen what they're, they're, they're doing. There is no mystery to how they want to play or who they want in that locker room. Character has always been uh, incredibly high on, on Brett Brown's list. Um, you know, culture is a word we, we throw around a lot, right? But But we've seen that pay off in Philadelphia. So I think finally... Um, you get one one more superstar in here, and I think you've got the real deal. And uh, the time is now. They want to win. The the timeline has changed, um, you know, but, but they need shooters. And, and perhaps even bigger than that, they need guys that can guard one-on-one. We saw that get exposed in the second round with Boston, um, you know, and, and you forget how young they are with, with Ben and, and how he really stepped up. One of the things that I uh, enjoyed most was, the final eight games of the regular season, Joel Embiid missed with that facial contusion. And of course they, they ended on a 16 game winning streak, but those final eight games, Richard, where Joel was not on the court with Ben and, and Ben, you know, he, he lets his play do the talking you've seen in the post game interviews and such. He, he lets his play do the talking and rightfully so. But what I saw was a leader emerge. He knew that he needed to step up. Joel was, was the moxie. He was, he was, you know, what, what everybody would run behind. So to not have that luxury, um, not only on the defensive end, but but in the locker room, in those huddles, I saw Ben really step up. So it will be um, 
pretty cool to watch how these guys grow up in front of our eyes now in, in year two here um, and, and seeing what they can do to develop. And I'm just, I'm so, I'm so happy for um, the coaches, you know, you, Markel Fultz is another story that um, really hit home. Um, people can speculate on, on what went down. I certainly saw the work behind the scenes that was going on um, from everyone in the organization, not just Markel, and he's got a lot of good people in his corner as well. So I think now they're, they're ready to win, and, and you know they want to win a couple rings. And I, I, I believe that we'll be back on Broad Street in a couple years. I truly believe that. And so I'm privileged to help tell the story you know, to whatever extent that I did. And, and look, I know this is not the end of the world, that good people lose their jobs and, and we're going to be okay. Um, but, but the 76ers, you, you, you better be pretty darn excited for their future. Well, I'd be remiss not to ask you about Brian Colangelo. And I imagine just as somebody who has been around that team, been around Colangelo, been around the Sixers organization, like the rest of us, I would imagine that story had to surprise the hell out of you, to be blunt. Yeah, yeah. You bet. And I, Commissioner Adam Silver was asked that last night, right? And he so gracefully said, you never get in the middle of a husband and wife. And wise words there. But I think it's, it's bizarre. It's um, sad. Um, I, I immediately reached out to Brian once, once the news broke. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a full-fledged supporter of his. And, um, you know, the entire family, really. He was, he was great to me. And I saw what he did for the team, for the city. It's a bizarre situation, um, you know, and that's, that's really all I can say. All right. Before I ask you what your future is heading forward, I, I'm correct about this. You, were, you competed at the 2000 U.S. Olympic team trials, correct, as a swimmer? You got it. You got it. You do your research. What, that was a long time ago. What was, was – like, I mean, it's, it's, you know, college may be a little longer for some of us, Molly. Um, what, uh, what was your event – Distance freestyle, the mile was my was my forte. I always wanted to be a sprinter, but distance was my thing. Distance freestyle, okay. So, like, we're talking, like, 1650, or what would be the... Uh, you got what's it. What's the... Um, you know your stuff. Wow. 1650, 16. yeah. I, uh, and I went to North Carolina, the right shade of blue, like I mentioned earlier. And, um, right. yeah, yeah, you see where I, I got in there. Um, but now I, I don't swim. Maybe I'll be mature enough one day to, to get back in the pool, but now I just do some running. So at the time of you, I mean, obviously you are a you know serious world-class swimmer if you're competing at the U.S. Olympic team trials. Who were the great distance swimmers um, among the women during your era? Who would we have seen at the, that, like the Olympic Games in that, um, in that time frame? So Janet Evans uh, continues to be a role model of mine. I just think she is um, incredibly graceful and, and, and full of class. Brooke Bennett. Um, but I always trained with the guys. You know, I, in, in Carolina, Santa Clara Swim Club was the number one club at the time. I left Las Vegas, lived with my coach. Uh, and somewhat it was an unheralded thing that, that happens in the sport of swimming. You know, you see it a lot with gymnastics and perhaps maybe track and field and such. But lived with my coach. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I owe him a lot because I, I don't know if I would have kept swimming. I think maybe I, it was between UCLA and, and North Carolina, North Carolina took me to a basketball game on my recruiting trip. And I said, all right, where do I sign? Um, and so, you know, perhaps at UCLA, I would have gotten sidetracked with different things. And so, um, made it out to Carolina and then, and then back to Vegas to, to start the real world. 
I'm looking at this now. So the 2000 Olympic gold medalist in Sydney mm-hmm. uh, for, yeah, the equivalent, I guess, or the closest for this would be right. the uh, 800-meter freestyle, right? So Brooke Bennett yep. wins gold. Woman, yep. woman from Ukraine gets silver. Caitlin right. Sandino yep. gets bronze. What is crazy about this is you are in the pool for eight minutes and going hard. That mm-hmm. Distance freeze, uh, distance freeze. I, I've uh, interviewed, and I know Dara Torres a little bit. And she's yeah. always been a sprinter. Santa Clara Swim Club. That's where you know, I. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, to- totally different sort of mindset. But, um, but so what you were doing? I mean, that's you must have trained crazy because to be to to compete in that kind of event where you're swimming hard for eight minutes, nine minutes, your training must have. I mean, you must have been in the pool every day as a twenty something. I would guess. Yeah, I mean, that was my full-time job, right? And think about it this way, and and I laugh about this sometimes because those that aren't too familiar with the sport, I mean, you're looking at that black line, Richard. You're not talking to anybody, and it's kind of like a sideline reporter, right? We get 30 seconds to tell the story and go, and you better be concise, and you better better nail the landing. And, And much like swimming, you're staring at that black line, and you're not talking to anybody. And so when you come up for air... Um, it was always interesting to see what you want to, you know, talk about at the wall because you're, you're, you're trying to catch your breath and you're trying to take your game to the next level. But, um, you know, many, many laps staring at that black line. But, I, um, you know, it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about discipline, about perseverance. Um, you know, I, I think I crave that constructive uh, criticism that we, we talked about earlier. And, you know, it, it made me just kind of help you know, do things the right way and always have a set higher goal, if you will. All right. So Ma, so there's a real, I could still find like a sort of a bare bones, like profile of you on the, uh, university of North Carolina swimming and diving bio. <laughs> oh boy. You're going down the rabbit hole. You are going down the rabbit hole. Let me congratulate you on being the 1996 Nevada swimmer of the year. <laughs> I, I just, I want to throw that in there. Oh boy. Uh, oh, but boy. Hey, these are, this is impressive. Uh, congrats on that. And wow. by the way, it looks like you have blonde hair in this uh, photo yeah. from you, from Carolina. Yeah. I, old, that's, uh, that's, that's being in the sun, I would think, for a while. So I was an entertainment reporter in a former life, and I was really bad at it, Chairs, you know, chasing Paris Hilton and Britney Spears around Las Vegas. And I think I got 86 from that uh, <laughs> entertainment industry. But I, when I went to sports, I got back to my roots. I, I went back to my, you know, brunette hair. And uh, so far, so good. All right, we'll we'll finish. Uh, so we're uh, we're we're pleased to be uh, with the second most famous athletic graduate from Carolina behind Michael Jordan. It's exciting. For me. <laughs> oh boy. Oh uh, boy. Yeah. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Apologies to Sam Perkins. Yeah. Uh, right. James Worthy. We've got a couple on uh, one um, and two. So you in prior you in during your basketball broadcasting tenure, you have appeared on TNT. You've done some national work. And so, you know, you have a resume that's not just a local resume, but you've done national games. So I understand that the sort of the shock of this probably is still, you know, we're still very, very recent to um, to this process for you. But, you know, at one point, do you start to think about, OK, what's my next step? What's my next step? What else do I want to do? And do I want to stay in basketball and maybe um, and maybe go for something um, that's not a city job or a national job. I just, I want to get into your mindset a little bit, even though I realize it's very new as to what, what, what you would like to happen next. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, we went down to the shore, my family, I've got a two-year-old daughter and, and my husband, we went down to the shore this weekend and I was finally able just to kind of take a breath and realize, you know, I'm excited for the future more. I'm hurt. Yes. But you know, that's going to pass and we've got to look forward. And yeah, you mentioned TNT and NBA TV and um, I did cover the postseason for them. And um, it was, it was great because you saw, you saw the good life and, um, you know, it is somewhat of a double-edged sword because, uh, you've got the best of everything under one roof. And so, um, yeah, you know, NBA is my first love. Would I love to stay in the game? You bet. Um, but there's a lot of other things that I want to do. And so I, I, I think at my core, I am a reporter. Um, I started off as a host and so perhaps going back to the studio where I, you know, I used to host a couple of shows in Vegas and, um, you know, we can go back that way. There's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity. And, and so again, going back to the fact that I'm loyal to a fault, um, this is a good thing. I mean, I, I think we'll look back on this and, and see, you know, maybe I wasn't going to leave Philadelphia. Maybe I'm so damn loyal, Richard, that I would have been here until I retired. So, um, you know, I, I think this is a good thing. Are you now, given what has happened, is it your thought process to have representation now to sort of have maybe a little bit more protection or, or, and there are a lot of broadcasters in your position who don't have agents and want to negotiate them this themselves. But I, I just wonder if has this experienced sort of changed your thought process on that? Well, I know you just had your podcast, you know, deep diving into that. I, I haven't gotten to that point yet. Um, you know, I'm, I'm finally at the point where I'm excited for the future. So we got to take one thing <laughs> at a time here. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm open to, to everything. And I think as long as I just continue to, you know, do things the right way. And, um, you know, I, I think that the reputation can absorb a few blows. We'll, we'll be okay here. Last one for me, Molly. And, uh, you know, I'll sort of give you the floor as we wrap up here, but Again, I, I understand it's it, you know it sucks to lose a job, and it certainly sucks to lose a job that you loved and that you were good at. But there is one: th- if there is any silver lining here, you are the rare broadcaster who acts who actually gets to realize that your work affected people, yeah. and you've seen that from social media. You've seen that from the petition. I saw the video of the kids clapping for you. It's very rare that any kind of broadcast journalist and certainly sports broadcast journalist gets to like sort of learn that their work had impact on them. So again, I realize it all sucks, but that has to, if there's any kind of silver lining, I just wonder if you've already been able to process that because you, you were fortunate to realize that you actually had an impact on people's, people's lives here and love of this team. Yeah, Richard, I don't take any of it for granted. I mean, I, I, I basically, you know, that night I see your tweet. I see you saying this makes no sense. You know, what an awful call. And I, it's, it's, you take a step back there because, you know, I've followed your work and how on point you've been with everything. I, I see my peers, um, again, the ownership group, the front office, the league office, people that I respect tremendously up in Secaucus, you know, um, you know, calling and, and, and giving me their words. So, and most importantly, the fans, because you can't BS them, not in this city not in this city. And I think they saw through everything. And so, you know, I'll never forget this feeling. And it's, it's 100% genuine. And if people that know me know this is authentic, I will never forget this feeling. And, and, and this whole week, um, you know, I know this will be old news soon if it's not already. And that's okay. Um, but I need to focus on what's next and, and continue to make Philadelphia proud. 
All right, Molly Sullivan, uh, for those of you certainly in Philadelphia, this is uh, you know who she is. For those who are listening to this outside of Philadelphia, was the uh, television sideline reporter for the Philadelphia 76ers for six years. You've heard her story on here. Um, it is a major story in Philadelphia because the Sixers fans have spoken out about what is, I mean, just to be very blunt, a kind of a ridiculous move by that network, and I think they will. Whether they realize it or not, it uh, they have now hurt their broadcast, and that is not, in my opinion, viewer-friendly. She has also worked for the NBA on TNT. She's done some stuff for ESPN, and I am sure you will see her heading forward in some broadcast capacity. We should also mention she's one of the great North Carolina athletes of all time and the 1996 Nevada Swimmer of the Year. So she has all this on her resume, which... Uh, which is very terrific. All right, Molly, listen, you did not have to do this, but you did. We don't know each other, but you were still kind enough to give me 40 minutes for this podcast to tell your story. And I have great respect for your work. I wish you nothing but the best heading forward. And I I do think we're going to see you doing some NBA work uh, sometime sooner than later. So thank you very much for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, Richard and Lou on the ones and twos that has a good little... (laughs) good little ring to it I, I i won't let you guys down you know you just got to win somebody over game by game and um i guess that's what i did here so just thanks for caring you know onward we go gents <laughs> molly <laughs> sullivan everyone all right my thanks to molly sullivan for her honesty and for coming on this podcast before we get to robert Latell and austin carp for the round table let's talk about buffalo wild wings Today's episode of the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch is also brought to you by Buffalo Wild Wings. At Buffalo Wild Wings, we admit that we often go overboard with our limited time offerings. We just can't help ourselves. Take our new signature sampler. For $15, you get wings and three shareable options like fried pickles or cheese curds. There's also our aptly named over-the-top nachos. It's a literal mountain of crispy tortilla chips loaded with your choice of pulled pork, or honey barbecue grilled chicken, corn, jalapenos, and more. Then top it all off with our new platinum margarita. Go overboard with us today at Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings Beer Sports, available for a limited time while supplies last. Please drink responsibly. All right, my thanks to Molly Sullivan for an excellent conversation. And now we bring in our roundtable. And this is a new construction of the roundtable, which I'm very excited about. First up, we have the Sports Business Daily and Sports Business Journal Assistant Managing Editor Austin Karp. If you follow me on Twitter, you know this is a guy I cite all the time. He, to me, is one of the foremost experts when it comes to sports viewership numbers and what they mean in this country. Uh, I cannot recommend following this guy more. He is uh, essentially, I would say, apolitical when it comes to this viewership stuff, which makes him a really important follow. So he joins us on the phone and back I don't know how many times he's been on, but he's now a regular, basically. And that's Robert Littell. He's the editor and founder of Black Sports Online. Follow him on Twitter at BSO. Austin and Rob, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Austin, I want to start with you. Uh, Rob, you can feel free to weigh in, or you can chill out in Los Angeles and look at Instagram models while Austin and I are talking <laughs> about this. It's up to you. It's up to you. Uh, I got a good Austin, story on I'm, that, too. <laughs> all right. Save, save it for the latter part of the uh, roundtable when we need the ratings, Rob. Um, so, Austin, I want to I get into the World Cup viewership numbers because this has been really interesting, I think, for both of us to watch, given that we are 
both getting inundated with Telemundo and Fox Sports releases, as we should. So the numbers overall from 2014 are down because the U.S. national team is not there because of the time difference, probably some cord cutting as well. At the same time, both Fox and Telemundo have had some single game viewership numbers that have been extraordinary. You know, Germany, Mexico, Argentina, Iceland. So if you can get start, Austin, I want to start with you. Give me a top down approach and I'll let you go as long as you want. How have you how would you analyze the World Cup viewership numbers right now for Fox and Telemundo and why? Well, just start by comparing the property to itself, the event to itself. You know, 2018 versus not just 2014, but 2010 from South Africa when you had some of those similar time slots with a lot of games in the morning, and that's when Univision and ESPN were carrying the event. 2018 is down. There's no way to sugarcoat it, and it's down it's down pretty big, somewhere in the 30 40% range because of the things that you said, you know, having to do with, I mean, not having the U.S. team, there was, no, there was less buzz and buildup to the tournament. And you're seeing that reflected in a lot in a lot of the numbers. I mean, when those U.S. games aired on ESPN or Univision, you were seeing you know huge telecasts, almost like you know BCS or CFP bowl game type numbers. And now you you know you don't have that sort of thing, and that's why you're seeing the overall drop. Um, but yeah, some of the specific games with some of the big stars, whether it's with Messi or Ronaldo, and obviously specifically with Team Mexico, you're seeing you know pretty big numbers on Telemundo and FS1 or Fox, depending on where it airs. But, uh, I mean, the Mexico numbers aren't even some of the biggest ones for FS1. I think you saw this past weekend, the Mexico match ended up being slightly below even Germany-Sweden, which was a great match. Now, within, you know, Fox Sports itself, you know, they're, they're actually relatively good numbers, setting, you know, soccer records for Fox Sports, but there isn't a tremendously long history there of soccer. But, you know, you look four years from now, if the U.S. qualifies, you know, Obviously, that tournament's going to be in the middle of winter up against football, but I think if the U.S. qualifies, you'll see an increase for Fox and Telemundo if that's the case. Austin, do you have any sense as to what the group stage viewership might mean for the knockout round? And I would think just sort of making some kind of projection, this is not any kind of genius take, but what Fox and Telemundo really need is they need some of these big teams to advance. Certainly for Telemundo, you need Mexico to go far if you get that you're going to have great ratings. If you're Fox, mm-hmm. you want Mexico to go far. You want maybe Spain to go far. Germany, teams that have recognizable, Portugal, recognizable stars, right? Yeah, it's analogous to a lot of the U.S. sports that are personality-driven. So if you have the Ronaldos and the Messis and the Chicharitos onto the next round, yeah, you'll see some of the more casual fans maybe tune in to see those knockout stages. Now, I don't know if you're going to see Messi uh, you know, in the next round, but... Um, you know, you're going to see some of your bigger teams like Germany and obviously Mexico is playing incredibly well. So, yeah, there might be some pickup, uh, you know, in the round of 16. Austin, how do you feel about Fox particularly putting out these numbers where they have made it a point to just give you viewership numbers that do not include the U.S. numbers from four years ago? You know, it's 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 sort of they've been using the phrase, you know, excluding uh, excluding U.S games as somebody who deals with ratings and viewership all the time do you do you feel that's a legitimate move by fox or do you feel like they're playing a little bit fast and loose by making by by basically creating their own comparison against tournaments that did not include the u.s or i should say again comparing numbers that don't include the u.s team which clearly was in the tournament four years ago listen i'm not going to fault them uh, you know the pr staff from any of these networks have jobs to do and have to put 
the best foot forward on the numbers that they have. Um, but those, obviously the, there are number, other numbers out there and you try to stay as apples to apples as you can and show, and you know, they paid for a tournament, whether the U S is playing or not. So, I mean, those are the types of numbers that I want to see is how is the tournament doing based on what they paid for? And that is the world cup, you know, regardless of whether the U S is in or not. One more thing about this. Um, Again, it's very far in the future, eight years from now. But it strikes me that the numbers for the World Cup in 2026 could really be extraordinary. Uh, you know, again, I'm not one who I'm a huge soccer fan, but I, I don't think soccer is ever going to be. You know, it's not going to be the NFL. It's not going to be the NBA. It's not going to get college football numbers. But eight years from now, Austin, a domestic World Cup. I mean, we could see Fox averaging. I, I don't even want to guess what you know. Six, I think they're going to be really good average numbers. for yeah. the entire tournament. I don't yeah, want to guess, I mean, but I mean, can... but by that time, I mean, who knows how we're even going to be measuring these sorts of things? But uh, I, I think they'll be incredibly huge numbers because you have the U.S. And, the, and Mexico and Canada likely all qualifying, and you're also talking about an expanded tournament by that point, where some of the bigger teams aren't going to be missing out. You're not going to have to necessarily worry about the Dutch or Italy not being in there. You're going to have all the major players, all the major countries, all the everybody that. All those countries that everybody really wants to see that they're watching in, you know, Euro 2024 or whatever it'll be, um, it, it'll it'll be much better, and you'll you'll see all the stars, whoever they are at the time. One more, and then I'll bring Rob in. Um, do you, uh, Austin? Have you? Is there anything that you can tell in terms of viewership trends or anything else regarding Telemundo's coverage? Have you? Are you able to ascertain if Telemundo is swiping any viewers away? For English-speaking viewers away from Fox who might not traditionally be watching the Telemundo coverage but are watching, or I should say the Spanish-language coverage, but but are watching Telemundo this this term? Yeah, I've heard, you hear a lot of people say that it's actually very interesting to watch the Spanish-language version of these broadcasts. It's maybe perhaps more livelier. And something that actually struck me as interesting that they're doing is uh, I think one of the matches this weekend is actually going to be the Telemundo game coverage will be simulcast in Spanish on NBCSN, which I thought was particularly interesting because I, I figured Fox Sports would be furious at something like that. I Obviously, I, I, that's legal under terms of whatever the contracts are, but I, I, if I was Fox Sports, I would not be happy about NBCSN showing any coverage um, of, of the game because it might take away from their audience. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty interesting... Uh, that was a pre- I think they're airing, if I'm right, the England-Belgium yes, World yes, Cup game match. in Spanish. That, that's a legitimate big game given... The popularity of the England national team in the states and Belgium is a up and coming world power yeah. with some global stars. So that's going to be an interesting one. To that's Thursday. That's going to be we're taking yeah, this I mean, on particularly uh, along Tuesday, among June perhaps, uh, bilingual uh, viewers. I mean, you might flip the NBCSM before you get to Fox Sports or uh, Fox Sports One or Fox. You might think that you might just stop there. And like I said, I wouldn't be very happy if I were Fox Sports and the money that I'm paying for this event. Interesting. That's going to be one to watch. That's a good point, Austin. All right, Rob. You've waited patiently. I'm going to bring you in. Uh, I'm, I'm going to bring Austin in, too, on sort of the NBA draft because he wrote about this. But first and foremost, Rob, just general impressions. When you were watching the NBA draft night coverage, whether you watched it on ESPN or ESPN2. Uh, well, I thought the actual coverage was not that great uh, or on ESPN. Some of that's not their fault, like the situation with the hat. Like, that always bothers me because, you know, they do these trades and then they have to go up and do the interviews. They have the wrong hat on. It's a different team. Uh, the situation with the Sixers uh, and, and uh, the player's mom that worked for the Sixers and he did all of this press 
for the Sixers only to, you know, end up getting traded later uh, after he had did all of the media rounds. I thought that was, wasn't a, a good look. Um, I actually thought, you know, the best thing about the NBA draft was uh, Wojciechowski. I mean, that's a social media thing. It wasn't, he, I don't, I think he's, I don't want to say terrible on TV. Um, let's just say his strength is not uh, front facing camera work. His strength is, is social media. And, he seemed much more comfortable with the things that he was doing on social media, which got a lot of attention uh, than he than what he did on television. So I don't know how ESPN can work on that because, you know, people are like, hey, get him off the camera so we can see what he's going to tweet next or how he's going to tweet uh, the pics. I was curious to know uh, if that was something that happened spontaneously uh, or was it something that Wong just said, you know, I'm going to do this because I'm trying to follow the rules. And it just kind of, you know, kind of caught fire and they, they ran with it. Uh, because I could imagine maybe at the beginning, ESPN executives were like, oh, my God, what is he doing? He's still tipping picks. He's just. But then as they saw it grow um, and how it was reacted on social media, I'm sure they encouraged him to keep doing it. Yeah. So the back that's a good point. The background of this is Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN's lead NBA reporter. Uh, there was he sort of not sort of, but he skirted the sort of tacit agreement that the NBA had with ESPN not to tip picks prior on Twitter prior to Adam Silver going up and announcing the picks. And Wojnarowski came up with some very creative ways to essentially tip the picks without using like the phrase, this team will pick this player. Rob, you're, you're someone who's on Twitter a lot as I am. I, I find it so, um, how do I sort of phrase this? I understand that these networks pay a lot of money to put these drafts on. But it really becomes such a silly proposition to tell your reporters not to tweet stuff when all their competitors are tweeting stuff and when 364 day, other days of the year, you want them to tweet stuff and you want them to tweet news. How do you, how do you look at the, the, the sort of Twitter bans that the leagues want to do with their TV rights holder partners? It never seems to work out perfectly. But it, it, I guess it works for the NFL much better than it works for uh, the NBA. I think it's silly. I don't think anyone on Twitter is changing the channel uh, about what's going on with the draft because someone tipped a pick. I just don't see that happening. I don't see someone saying, oh, you know, I'm going to throw the whole program away, you know, and I can just sit on Twitter and watch it. You watch TV for other reasons, not just the pick. You watch it for the debate. You watch it for the analysis. Uh, you watch it for the suit. You watch it for – uh, what the player may say afterwards, the family, the girlfriend, uh, the side chick that may say, you say you watch it for other reasons than just the pick. So I think it's very silly. I think the, the tipping of the picks and the social media engagement is what has increased uh, draft viewership, in my opinion. I think because we can talk about it as a family on social media and we can put stuff on Instagram and we can Snapchat it. It has made these award shows must-see TV, and that's why they're doing it. So I think they're only shooting themselves in the foot uh, when they try to limit uh, their reporters. It's very similar to me, to this, like MLB, uh, when they you know, really get on people for doing the highlights and stuff like that, or where the NBA has embraced it. And I think that's only helped uh, the NBA because more people want to watch because they're seeing it on different um, avenues on, on social media. This is why we have Austin Carp here, who could sort of back this up with the numbers. Austin, I think both of us would agree the there was essentially no impact of what Adrian Wojnarowski did in terms of the viewership. the The NBA draft was down slightly 
this year from last year, but had been up from previous years. My read on this, I probably even took my data either from you or Sports Media Watch, was that the tipping picks, at least when it comes to the NBA, have absolutely no impact. And I'm with Rob here. Actually, I think the NBA should embrace this because it's such a heavy social media sport that they should embrace their fans sort of enjoying all this talk on Twitter as opposed to the NFL, which is very scared about, um, you know, God forbid, giving up any picks before the commissioner comes out. What, what's, what, what, what trends did you see with the NBA draft viewership this year? No, I think you nailed it, and I kind of agree with you guys that I don't think that tipping, you know, from, from Woj had much to do with a decrease or an increase in any sort of viewership. And it was kind of ridiculous. And once you saw that Mark Stein kind of uh, tried to uh, pull, pull a, a Woj on Woj, that's when he was like, I'm not going to have any of that. Woj owns that space. And, of course, he was going to do it. And I, and I think by the end of the, you know, by the next day, ESPN was kind of like, oh, you know, we, we, we fully uh, are behind what Woj did because they realized it was a mistake. And I think you'll see them kind of, change path next year as to what kind of role they have, whether it is on air or whether they just, you know, cut to him only maybe more infrequently or just not have him on at all. Um, He he is the best at breaking that sort of news. And they, the NBA is good about embracing all the social stuff. And I think they'll get with their media partners and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll embrace all that. And I enjoyed the, the telecast as far as the drama, you know, watching how, you know, how far Michael Porter Jr. would drop and why, and, you know, you kept asking yourself, how bad is this medical report that everyone keeps seeming to pass over the guy who's projected to be the number one pick? So there is still some drama with it. And like you said, it's always good. Uh, like Rob said, it's always good to uh, to see what suits everyone's wearing and uh, what uh, what they have uh, sewn into the, into the jacket there inside. So I, I still find it to be a good event. Woj taking back his corners. I love that. Um Austin, I uh, I want to ask you, because I have you here, about baseball. I've been reading some interesting stories from the national baseball writers about attendance being down throughout baseball. And, and again, if you're a baseball fan, you already know this, but there's a group of teams that have a chance to be well over 100 wins this year. And then there's a group of teams that have a chance to be under 100, I'm sorry, over 100 losses this year, or close to 100 losses. And it's just an interesting year in baseball in that there's some significant haves and significant have-nots. Austin, from what you've seen around the country in terms of regional baseball, because you follow these RSNs, have you been able to pick up any kind of viewership trends this year on how baseball is doing in terms of television watching? Well, I, I, you know, from the numbers that I have seen, I think it is directly correlates to what you see. You know, for the, for the haves, you're seeing – you know, incredible numbers for Yes Network. It seems like they're setting uh, a record, you know, almost every other week with how they're doing uh, in the AL East. You know, and same thing with surprise teams like the Braves. They're setting some records down on FS South and FS Southeast. You know, they have a lot of young and up-and-comers. So, they, you know, like Ronald Acuna, so when you know, they had his debut. And um, last week, I think they saw, like, their best game on the RSN in, like, two years. But then, you know, you're, you're going to see some very large declines for teams like the Orioles or maybe the Pirates or the Tigers. I mean, the Tigers in particular were slipping over the last few years, and you saw when they started to unload guys like Justin Verlander that, you know, fans, you know, fans are not dumb. Fans know when when the team is just in a rebuild mode and is, you know, not a, a great product on the field to watch. But yeah, it's reflected in the attendance, it's reflected in ratings, and it's you know, it's kind of an issue this year with some teams thinking they might have a shot at some of these studs uh, in the uh, 2018 for, or the next free agent class. So we'll see how it, how it rolls out next year, whether you see that, that this sort of dichotomy between the top and the bottom. And what have you seen with national uh, 
ratings, uh, Austin, obviously early in the year, ESPN got some attention because their Sunday night baseball numbers were really down. But I think as you pointed out in the sports business daily, a lot of that had to do with scheduling and that the, the ESPN was going to have some big teams later in the year and the viewership numbers should, uh, Popo, I think what's clear is that it's not exactly like Alex Rodriguez and Matt Vesgersian have game changed viewership, but that it's it always strikes me that that is always dependent on the teams and nothing else. It is, and something that they've gone to in recent years is they usually have what four to five Yankees Red Sox type broadcasts, and that's your that's your big ticket for Sunday night baseball. And they've started backloading those in the recent years. They used to have one early in the season, but uh, now they they realize that you know if they're going to be competitive, those two teams, you really want to see them you know post All Star break. So you'll definitely start seeing more of those on Sunday Night Baseball. And, you know, it's things that you won't get to see some, you know, hopefully maybe you'll get to see someone like Shohei Otani later in the season, but I don't even know if he's going to be pitching this season or next season. We'll find out soon. But it's generally Yankees, Red Sox that are, you know, they're going to, they're going to help that in the back half. Will it help them close the gap? Because it was a pretty big decline so far in the, for Sunday Night Baseball. I, I, I don't even know if uh, Yankees Red Sox can help them get back to even. All right, Rob Latell, I'm going to give you the floor here. Uh, how excited are you for the Paul George decision? Uh, not at all. I know. I see your Twitter feed. That's why I'm setting you up. Uh, yeah, the immortal words of uh, Draymond, you know, they don't love you like that. You, you thought you were LeBron. You, you just, you know, Paul George. And, and that's not a knock on Paul George or ESPN for doing their, you know, the Paul George decision. I'm sure if ESPN had their choice, uh, they would prefer that it would be LeBron, but obviously he's taking control over his own narrative. I think it's good for Paul George. He gets, uh, you know, just to show people who he really is and what's going on behind the scenes. I don't have a, an issue with it. Obviously, a lot of my followers had an issue with it. I just think Paul George is a, a – he's Robin. He's a secondary uh, person. He, he's not Beyonce. He's Kelly Rowland. Maybe Michelle Williams. <laughs> you know, he, 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 you know he's, a, he's the fifth member of Boys to Men. He, he's just not – like, the, the, to me, there are superstars in the NBA, and then there's all-stars. And, and Paul George is, a, is an all-star. I don't want to put him in the same level as, like, where Dwight Howard was, where Dwight Howard would have these big free agency things, and then they'd go to their team, and then, it, you know, it would just kind of fizzle out. Uh, but he, he's the type of guy that if he goes to a team as the person, the main guy, uh, it's not, it's not going to work out. He can't carry a team. Uh, like it. So I think it's good for him for his marketing, for whatever else he, he wants to do. Uh, but, you know, since we're talking about ratings, I would be curious if that sports center that has Paul George on it uh, gets any bump at all, or is it just kind of normal sports center ratings and people just consider it as a normal segment on the show? That's a good question. All right, so let's give the background. The sports center is going to. T- <laughs> I can't believe I'm reading the SPNPR press release. But SportsCenter will take viewers behind behind the scenes with uh, Paul George. It's called Paul, Paul George's My Journey. It's a three-part series that will debut in the 6 p.m. edition of SportsCenter starting uh, today, in fact, Tuesday, June 26th. Uh, Austin, the, to answer Rob's question, and you obviously can certainly answer better than I can, but my sense is that this kind of stuff will give the 6 p.m. edition a little bit of a bump. I mean – we're talking rounding era bump, but anything that you can get people to Sports Center late June, early July in the dead time of sports. This is why ESPN does this stuff. So my guess is, without knowing anything, the Tuesday Sports Center should probably do better than last Tuesday Sports Center. That yeah. would be my guess. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's the time of year, especially for that 6 p.m. Sports Center. I mean, obviously that that time slot has you know over the course of the year has issues, but now you're talking about all these sort of highlights you might have or baseball highlights. 
And if there are no day games, you almost you have nothing to show in that 6 p.m. Sports Center. So why not put a behind right. the scenes look at, at Paul George? It's a good slot. It'll probably like you see see a marginal uptick compared to what they normally get there. But it, I think it's a win win for Paul George and for and for ESPN. All right. Well, let's talk quickly about Get Up because we have Austin here as our sort of viewership expert, and we have Rob here as a guy who's like me, sort of just watching and analyzing. Rob, uh, Get Up now has had a little bit longer lifespan, and its numbers have popped up a little bit, especially during the World Cup. It's sort of creeped over 300,000, but yet I still find there's absolutely just no buzz on this show. I I have said this at this point now, it seems like 50,000 times. I'm happy to say it again. I don't think this show has a long-term future. Um, no disrespect to the people who are on that show, but I've always said I don't think Mike Greenberg is destination viewing in terms of somebody waking up that morning and saying, what is Mike Greenberg's take on X? I don't even know if ESPN has that person, but uh, it's just not Mike Greenberg. And I think ultimately that's the fundamental flaw with a show that you're putting around a centerpiece, but the centerpiece isn't destination viewing and you are competing in the hardest and toughest time slot in television, morning television, against the Todays and the Good Morning Americas, not to mention the CNNs, the Fox Newses, and the MSNBCs in the era of Trump. Donald Trump tweets out stuff every morning. It creates a news cycle. To me, if you're ESPN, I don't think you have any shot to get big traction there on GetUp. Rob, I don't know if you've been watching it since we last talked about this, but do you have any further thoughts prior before I get to Austin to give us a little bit of a viewership analysis. Yeah, I watch it from from time to time just to, you know, if they have something that I consider viral, which is which is not often. Uh I think sometimes ESPN can be hard headed, uh, because they are the worldwide leader and for whatever reason somebody had in their mind that, you know, they wanted Mike Greenberg to be the face of, you know, morning sports talk. Uh, and once they got it in their mind, they're like, we're going to, you know, push it through regardless of, you know, what people are saying or people saying, yeah, we don't think this is a good idea. Um, I, I think, you know, they brought in Beetle and Jalen Rose to give it a, a little bit of flavor, uh, but it's still not, you know, meshing. Uh, I believe, you know, they've had some guest hosts on there where it actually worked a little bit, you know, better. So I think, it, it, I don't think it's necessarily the setup. I don't think it's the time slot. I just think they have to find, the right combination of people. And sometimes, to use a, bas- a basketball anal- analogy, uh, when you put a dream team together, if they don't function like the Warriors, you know, it doesn't work. You know, I always go back to the 2004 Lakers. You know, they had Carl Malone, Gary Payton, Shaq, Kobe, but there was so much tension um, that, you know, it, it couldn't function as, as a team. Even er- the early heat, uh, you know, the, that first year, you know, they had a, a lot of tension that didn't quite work. I think they tried to put together a dream team with, with separate parts that really didn't fit well uh, because they were high-profile names. I think they would be better off if they want to put a team around Greenberg, around people that fit more with his style. And I, then I think it would, go, it would come across better. Because right now you've got, you got four people or three people that think that they're the number one option. They think they're LeBron. And you can't have three LeBrons on a team. I love thinking of uh, Beetle Rose and Greenberg as LeBron. That just for some reason that just makes me just makes me I enjoy that. All right, Austin. So I have had John O'Rand, your beloved colleague, on this show, and I have had James Miller. He is on so and, beloved, John. And I, yeah, Chad Finn and Lindsey Adler and all these people. We've all talked about Get Up. Uh, to give uh, O'Rand some love here, he is the one who has. Um, not that he has said it will be a 
a, a, a you know big time success. He has just said that you probably need to give it more runway deep into the NFL season to make the um, you know a larger analysis. There's nothing. There's that's all logical. That makes sense to me. But here's what I would ask you in terms of viewership numbers. The the numbers for Get Up compared to where to this slot a year ago are down. Um, Get Up is up a little bit since its lows over the last couple of weeks. Now we head to the summer, and I don't expect Get Up to really great 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 numbers in the summer, but that's pretty logical for a lot of morning sports. It strikes me, Austin, uh, that when you look at the viewership numbers, September first to November first is the entire ball game for this show, and they're going to need a catalyst to make a jump. I don't see what that catalyst will be, including the NFL, but I guess if I'm an ESPN executive, is that what I'm looking for right now to see where the show is like on a November 1st? And my hope is that we can somehow get to 400,000 as opposed to 290, 280, 300. How how should I look at this viewership? No, I I think you're right. They're going to have to hit the ground running with whatever formula that they're going forward with by the time football season starts. And whether that's bringing in a fourth chair that's a football-focused voice or swapping out Galen or Michelle for a football-focused voice, they're going to make that call during the summer so they can get some sort of rapport going. I, they, they have to get it going for football season. Like you said, like they're going to have to nail these numbers. The question is now, what kind of numbers are they looking for? You talk about terms, yeah. in terms of viewership, yeah, like 300,000, 400,000 in total viewership. You're never going to take on those morning shows that are attracting a large you know, female-centric uh, viewership. So if you're going for a male audience, which obviously, you know, it, it's, it's a, you know, CSPN, are you getting the male numbers? Are you beating some of those shows in, like, the male 18 to 34 or male 18 to 49, you know, demographic, which they may have been doing when they had just SportsCenter on there. If you're not doing that with a high-priced show, it's going to get the ax. This is, you know, these are businesses. This is economics. They're going to make a call like that pretty easily if it's not getting those sort of numbers. All right, I want to ask you about Fox's studio shows, Austin. I know that Rob and I, I give Rob credit. Rob knows how I feel about some of these shows, particularly uh, Skip Bayless and Undisputed. Rob Rob kind of likes Bayless because he admires him as a straight-up heel, and I, I kind of understand that um, thinking. I mean, I, I think he's disingenuous and really bad for the profession, but, you know, as a straight-up heel, he's certainly doing uh, his Hollywood ho- – he's, he's a good Hollywood Hogan, I guess, in that sense. But um, I want to ask you about the viewership of Fox's studio shows. It's kind of hard to figure out anything this month because they're all getting the gigantic bump from the World Cup. I mean, Undisputed is never going to get over 300,000. Again, if you're Fox PR, you got to trumpet that. But, you know, America's fastest growing sports show is going to be America's least growing sports show in a month when 300 becomes 140. So what do you, what do you make what do you make of that lineup from undisputed to first things first to the coward show to this uh, uh, speak for yourself show. If you're looking at this on pure viewership numbers, is this the right strategy to head forward? They've certainly, they're certainly higher than where they were when Horowitz took over. But like, honestly, me, you and Rob could have probably gone on and beat some of those numbers. So I, I just, I wonder how you, how do you look at that? If you're an executive in your opinion? Well, I, I don't think it's become, I mean, the numbers are reflective of this. It's not destination viewing anymore, or at all. It hasn't become that um, for any of these shows. And eventually, you just got to make a call. Like I said, like, is it worth paying all this money to that talent to get 150,000 viewers? It, eventually, it's just not worth it. And, you know, whether they, they're still on, you know, Jamie Horowitz's track uh, as far as, 
what they're doing there, whether they, you know, make a turn at some point. I mean, I, I think it will come to that. What they put in that sort of spot, I mean, I wish I, I if I had the answer, I'd, I'd be selling it right now. But uh, I, I don't know. I'm sure what else, I'm not sure what else they can put in that time slot. Rob, how do you see it? Because I know you look at this stuff kind of differently than me. You think there's a, you know, there's a place for kind of shows where there's sort of a heel in the same way there is in like the WWE and and you can get audience from hate watching. How do you feel about like those types of shows, but not just that. I, I'm curious. I actually don't know the answer to this, but how much Fox Sports, how much Fox Sports day, day part programming do you watch compared to ESPN? Um, I will say this. I, I think Fox's lineup creates more viral content uh, than ESPN mm-hmm. these days in the embrace the debate uh, kind of era. Like, I mean, this is not Stephen A. Smith causing some sort of controversy. Uh, you don't really hear anything. They kind of have ESPN is kind of strayed away from that. Uh, but it's, it's FS1 that is bringing us Baker Mayfield versus Colin Cowherd or Shannon Sharp uh, wearing a LeBron jersey while drinking Hennessy or, or Jason Whitlock saying whatever crazy thing that Jason Whitlock says, you know, every day. Uh, so they may not be getting the, the television viewership, uh, but I think they're winning the social media uh, viral type of things. And I don't know how that all equates as far as dollars and cents, you know, with YouTube and Twitter or Instagram and stuff like that. Uh, I think if their goal is to cause controversy. Like, I don't think their goal is to give analysis. I don't think their goal is to be rational or to be biased or anything, or or to be unbiased, I should say. I think their entire goal of their shows, you know, starting at 7 a.m. whenever, you know, uh, Chris um, and them come on, is to say things and to do things that are going to get us talking on social media, that's going to get them linked on other websites, because everybody was like, oh, Baker Mayfield killed Colin Cowherd. Uh, but that was on every single major website, uh, their competitors, I might add, uh, that video, that audio, those quotes and everything. So yeah, I don't think Colin Cowherd cared about what people were saying about him. I think that he cared about the fact that everybody was talking about Colin Cowherd. So like I said, I don't know from an a economic standpoint, a rating standpoint, I don't know how all of that meshes. Uh, but I do know that if their goal is to create attention, create buzz, worthy topics and thinking that's the wave of the future, uh, I do think they're going in the right direction with that, no matter if you kind of agree with that style of journalism or not. Rob, I'm curious, um, and this will be the last thing we talk about. Austin, you feel free to weigh in if you want uh, on this as well, but have you sensed ESPN at all because of all the heat that they took, uh, certainly on um, in, in a lot of conservative uh, websites? Do you think they have dialed back some of the I don't know how to sort of phrase this, but some of the viral stuff that they may get from some really hardcore opinions, because your, your point is pretty interesting about how Fox has maybe gotten a little more virality from their stuff than other places. You know, this a lot of the ESPN stuff obviously used to come from First Take, but we haven't seen as much crazy from First Take, at least lately. And I don't know. I don't know if that's by design. Or if that just happens to be a happenstance that just the last couple of weeks, we've just seen less stuff coming out of ESPN just because of it is what it is. Yeah, from, from people that I've talked to, you know, behind the scenes at ESPN, and uh, I think we just saw that report in the, the Hollywood Reporter about how some people felt about the six and Jamel Hill and was it too black and just, but I think even not on a black and white issue, I think it was more like what you just said, are we being a little bit too, 
uh, controversial? Are we stepping into the line, over the line, uh, where people are debating not the topics, but, you know, our reporters, our journalists, um, and we want to bring it back down to just, you know, sports. Uh, to me, it seems like since 2018 uh, that that's what they've been doing more. Every once in a while, you would get something, but uh, 99% of their stuff now that we're talking about on ESPN is pretty much sports-related. Um, and even the stuff that I would say is socially conscious or social injustice, uh, maybe they push that, you know, to the undefeated. They push it away from the main, you know, brand. And I think that's, you know, by design. Now, that's an interesting way of, you know, handling it. Um, I do think they not as, as big as the NFL, uh, but I do think they've caved a little bit to Trump. They've caved a little bit to the MAGA audience. Uh, I'm not saying that they are MAGA or, or they have those same feelings. I'm saying that they just didn't want to deal with uh, some of the pushback that was coming to them. Um, and I think that's a trend that's going to continue. But I also think that's the reason why shows like Get Up uh, are struggling or, or shows uh, because in those type of shows, what people, why people watch is the controversy. The reason that you watch the first take is to hear Stephen A. Smith scream. If he didn't scream, you wouldn't watch. You may complain about it, but that's the reason that you actually watch. So it's a very fine line, but I think they're trying to go more of the NFL route of taking all of that politics stuff out of it and just being more sports. It's interesting. Uh, all right, so Austin, I'll finish up with you. Um, you're welcome to wait in here. Uh, if you want or not, but have you, again, you work at a place which, you know, part of what you guys do every day is to sort of take and watch the landscape of what is going on in all these different places. You obviously do it from a business perspective, but, you know, you, you will see stuff that gets viral or or does not. Have you sensed anything in the last couple of weeks with ESPN making some kind of shift to, um, I don't want to see be apolitical, but maybe not maybe not be a calm the waters a little bit basically and try to avoid any kind of uh, controversial stuff, even if it gets you attention or is it just happenstance that the last couple of weeks we haven't seen it as much? I think it might be more of the latter of what you're referring to. Let's look at the time of the year that we're at right now. I mean, this is, this is the slowest time of year for, for sports. Um, if you think that there's not going to be any political controversy on ESPN come football season, not just come football season, come football season during midterm election season, like somebody will say something, there will be some sort of political controversy. I mean, Trump has already said he plans on using this whole NFL issue, you know, for the midterm elections. So we're, we're, we have not seen the last of this. You know, I, I, what ESPN personalities do in the fall, I'm not sure. We'll, we'll see what direction they take, whether it's more toned down. Uh, but uh, we have not seen the last of this, but I think it's more reflective of us being in a slow time of the year for sports. All right, well said, Austin. All right, Robert Littell is the founder and lead editor of Black Sports Online. You could follow him at BSO. He has been uh, on this podcast before a number of times and will be on again. Rob, uh, we didn't get to it, but I will encourage all people listening to this to go to your Twitter feed to check out. You, you're at the NBA Awards show. You have yeah. a lot of good photos, basically, from uh, the red carpet, a couple of them which uh, I enjoyed very much this morning as I was doing my research on you. So well done on your photo, uh, work, Rob. Yeah, and one, and one thing, you, you know, always got to get a WWE uh, thing in here. I just want to point this out. Uh, between Enzo, Enzo, Cass, and Carmella, who would have thought, you know, in, what, two years that Carmella – would be the, the one that's left standing out of those three, the one that's actually flourishing 
uh, in the WWE uh, as women's champion on, on, on SmackDown. So shout out uh, to Camella. I always liked her. And uh, Enzo and Cass, uh, I didn't quite see that coming. That was a, that was a, that was a bad breakup, like the Fat Boys, uh, when they broke up. And uh, they just sometimes you're just better together than apart. And, and this was a situation with that. So I had to get my WWE take in that right quick. No, I, Rob, I'm with you. I, big Cass, great huge good looking guy the kind of big guy that Vince loves he could talk a little bit on the mic you know I know I read read some stuff that there was some behind the scenes stuff he, he might not have been listening didn't follow Vince's directions but that that could turn out to be a horribly bad mistake for Cass because that was a guy who could have been in WWE 10-15 years just given his look I am I am stunned at that but uh we've seen this before you know we have seen guys uh leave the WWE before but yeah I would have never guessed that Given how hot Enzo, how much heat Enzo and Cass had, Carmella's the last one standing. All right, Austin Carp. I tell you what, with two boys at home, i got to brush up on my WWE knowledge. Well, Rob and I will help you out here. Uh, Austin Carp is the assistant managing editor at Sports Business Daily. Follow him at Austin Carp. I've said this before, but you know, between he and Sports Media Watch and Anthony Krupe at Ad Age, uh, nobody better when it comes to analyzing sports uh, television, sp- sports, digital viewership that's not connected to one of the networks. they got some very good people who work the networks, too, who do this. But Austin is an independent, and uh, I highly recommend him. Rob and Austin, thank you very much for joining us today on the Sports Media Podcast, and uh, you both will be back. Uh, I appreciate it very much. Thank you. No, it was great. Thanks for having thank me. Thank you. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to all my guests, Molly Sullivan, Austin Karp, and Robert Littell for two different conversations. Uh, really interesting, and we certainly wish Molly Sullivan the best of luck. I think she's going to get hired in a cool job soon. She's she's too talented for that not to happen. Please uh, go to uh, Apple Podcast to the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. Check it out, and if you like this content, please leave us a rating and a review. Previous podcasts include ESPN's Adnan Verk, who took you very deep inside his contract negotiation. That is not something that almost anybody does. It's like Fight Club. Don't talk about Fight Club. But Adnan Verk went pretty deep in his contract negotiation, and I think that's in- that should be interesting whether you're in this business or not. Calvin Watkins of The Athletic, who covers the Cowboys, was also on that podcast discussing all the crazy that exists when it comes to Jerry Jones and company. Previous ones include Carissa Thompson, How to Cover the World Cup with Grant Wall, uh, Joe Tessator, Doris Burke, Cheryl Reeve, Vern Lundquist, Jason Starr, Ken Rosenthal, and the list goes on. That's the Sports Media Podcast with Richard Deitch. Please check it out. My producer, as always, is Lou Pellegrino. Always does a great job. Appreciate everybody at uh, Cadence 13. This is Richard Deitch. We'll see you again on the Sports Media Podcast.